All right, let's uh, pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, um, we want to understand clearly from your word um, the characteristics of a person that's Christian. We want to deal wisely with our counselees. Help me to teach on this subject in a way that's, uh, that's pertinent, that's helpful to these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And so give us clarity, help me as I teach, and help them as they listen to think carefully about these concepts and how what's presented should influence their counseling methodology going forward. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, please find your notes that are entitled Evangelize or Disciple, Discerning a Counselee's Spiritual Condition. This is a very significant issue and something that I think ideally every Christian should, every biblical counselor, you have to address ideally in session number one. And there's two questions that I think you want to answer by the end of question number one. Question one is, am I going to treat this person as a Christian or as a non-believer? And question number two is, why? Why am I going to treat them as a Christian, or why am I going to treat them as a non-believer? And uh, this is a subject that's been, the Lord's been working in my life on this for a long, long time. So let me just begin by talking to you about some of the shaping influences and how I approach this subject. First of all, I was born again at the age of 10. So I know that young people can understand the gospel. And because I was raised in a Christian home, you know, I hadn't got too far outside of the guardrails of, uh, you know, biblical standards of living by age of 10. But even as at that tender age, there was a change in my heart that caused me to be warm to the gospel and to the things of God. Another shaping influence in my life has been the special joy that I have had in leading people to repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior and Lord. And by God's grace, even as a teenager, I was able to lead some friends to Christ. And as a camp counselor, I had the joy of doing that. <clears throat> and then as a seminary student, and then early days of my pastorate, I mean, along the ye- years, I've had a special joy. And for any of you who've done that, I mean, that's memorable. I mean, that's hallelujah time. A third significant influence has been observing that the more time I spent explaining Christ and the gospel to a person, the better disciple he was after co- after conversion. And uh, this was... Uh, a bit of a aha moment for me when I saw that happen multiple times in my pastorate. That was so different from the, the church background I had. I'd grown up in a Bible-believing uh, Baptist church in southeastern Ohio, and where the scriptures overall was taught uh, accurately. But uh, our church attendance kind of varied depending on how long ago we had the last revival service, and. Um, in that context, what I had seen by way of evangelism, and one of the most memorable ones for me, was we had an evangelistic meeting uh, one spring or fall. And in the closing night, the evangelist, uh, after at the end of his sermon, began giving the invitation. We're singing Just As I Am or some other common invitation hymn. And the invitation starts with those of that you want to trust Christ and then later, after nobody came, those of you who want to follow Christ and believers' baptism, those of you who want to become members of the church, and, you know, people began going forward, and it got broadened up pretty soon. I was one of the ones that went forward. And I remember standing there at the front as the invitation was broadened until everybody in our church had come forward except our high school music teacher who had been invited to the service by one of the students in his band. And I stood at the front looking at that man, and I thought, that's the most courageous man I know. And there was something about that experience that just said to me, this is not right. This is not right. This is not the way I'm going to do ministry. Then as a pastor, I found that if I spent a lot of time talking to somebody that's unsaved about the gospel and answering their questions and getting them reading the gospel of John, once they did repent and follow Christ and believers' baptism and church membership, they went on and became one of our strong members and ended up in service and leadership in the church later on. Here's another um, 
shaping influence in my life, and that is the rich opportunities for evangelism that counseling has provided me. Uh, I became a pastor back in uh, April of 1974. It's a long time ago. And it was a, what preachers would call a rescue work. The church had gone through two major splits. Congregation of 120 had dwindled to where they had 17 voting members. The church averaged 38 in Sunday school two months before I got there. It took five, church, five or six churches supporting me uh, for a year, 18 months. And the idea was, you know, see if we can revive this dying church. And so it was very obvious, you know, I had to reach some new people. And I had a promised salary for 12 to 18 months, so it's time to either fish or cut bait. I mean, something needs to happen. And uh, so back then, of course, this was before the, the Internet and computers and everything. Back then, uh, I knew that one of the best prosper people that you could reach would be newcomers to our community because people that are established tend to have churches that they call theirs. They may not go to it, but they call it their church. They're not looking for a church. So what we did back then is uh, we would buy from the local water company what they called the turn-on list. You know, when people move into a new home or an apartment and they get the utilities turned on. And so we would buy the turn-on list. And uh, I would go out on visitation Tuesdays and Thursday nights. I spent so much time wandering through subdivisions and getting lost and trying to find people. And I did that faithfully because I'm really working hard to try to reach people. And I found out most of the people whose doors I were not, was knocking on, they were more suspects than prospects. And uh, it was a happy day for me, two years into the pastorate, when I took, got trained in biblical counseling. And I be, as my counseling skills began developing and the word got out that I was willing to meet with people, uh, it was a happy day when people started coming to see me. And I didn't have to go chase around trying to find them. And... Uh, so in the last half of my 12-year pastorate, even though I was out on visitation at least one night a week trying to, and I've led a lot of people to faith in Christ in their homes, and I know how to do that, and I've done that. But in the last half of my pastorate, I consistently led more people to faith in Christ in the counseling office, in the counseling room, than I did on visitation. And uh, the way one of my friends, Steve Byers, talks about it, if you're offering free biblical counseling to the community and it's known and people from the community start coming in, it's almost like fishing in a barrel. The evangelistic opportunities are rich because you have the opportunity of building a relationship over time. And you can talk about the gospel, but you can also help them in other areas of their life. And you build involvement and they have time to read. They have time to listen to preaching and teaching and ask their questions. And you build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of the gospel presentation and calling them to repent of their sins. You see. So uh, another uh, shaping influence in my life has been the fact that people seem to be more ignorant of Bible truths today than ever before in my lifetime. You know, people talk about the fact that we live in post-Christian America. Um, I would certainly agree with that. But what amazes me is even people who come from backgrounds where you would expect them to know, you know, a good bit about the Bible, it just seems like they don't. I mean, this was brought home to me uh, in the last uh, year or so. As an ACBC fellow supervising people pursuing certification, one of the requirements that a fellow has is we have to listen to five audio recordings of counseling conducted by the person we're supervising. And part of the burden of my heart is to help the people I'm supervising or coaching. I want them to learn how to get off to a good start in counseling. That's part of the reason I taught the workshop I did yesterday. That's just one of my things. I want to help people get going well. So I demand that people early in the supervision process submit recordings to session number one and two. And then after we've gone through a few more sessions, we get up about 20, 25 sessions. I want another brand-new session, one and two and then they get up about 30 or 35, I want to hear another session one. And uh, so one day I'm listening to a session number one with a, a lady that I'm supervising from another state, and she is supervising a young woman in her early 20s from a church that I know about. In fact, they, that church had hosted an ACBC training event in the past. It would have a doctrinal statement, probably all of us 
would agree with, or most of us would. And they'd host an ACBC training at one time. And her, as she's session one, she's telling about her life history. She kind of grew up in that church and everything. Later in the session, and she professed faith in Christ, later in the session, the counselor asked her to turn to the book of Ephesians. And the counselee said to the counselor, after a pause, is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding. You don't know whether Ephesians is in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I mean, that's pitiful. And um, yet she professed faith in Christ and had grown up in the kind of church that a lot of us would like. That had, that, the, the amount of ignorance about what people think about Jesus and about the Bible these days is just appalling. And if you agree, several of you are nodding your heads. That ought to do something to you than when you're evaluating people. All right, let's move on. So that's some shaping influences in my life. Let me talk to you now, number two, about some experiences that I've had and some scriptures that God has used to prompt a reevaluation of my own evangelistic efforts. I want to mention six. One of the most profound is Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And <clears throat> this scripture says, Christ is speaking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, as I've meditated on that passage, I've been struck by the fact, Lord, Lord, suggests that they know religious language. Didn't we prophesy in your name? I think that means they did religious teaching. Cast out demons? I thought, wow, I've never done anything like that. And then perform many miracles? Wow, wow. I've never done anything close to that. And yet Christ said, depart from me, ye cursed, I have never known you. Those verses haunted me as a pastor. Because I kept pondering, I wonder how many people that I'm talking to and preaching to that I've been treating as a believer who in reality are headed to hell. Um, Here's another shaping influence. And that's speaking with individuals doubting the reality of their salvation and concluding that many of them had not truly been born again, but had had a meaningful religious experience. One of the men who trained me in biblical counseling was Pastor Bill Good. One of his phrases that he used a lot is that people need to know that they know that they know that they're born again. And I've kind of picked up on that. And as a result of that, emphasis on people knowing that they know that they know they are born again. Uh, I'd have people that were members of our church uh, periodically come and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And they'd say, you know, I keep hearing you say that. And every time you say it, I just wonder if I've really been born again. So it set the stage for some fruitful discussions. And I'd ask people, tell me about, you know, in your mind, when when do you think you became a Christian? And they usually point to some event. You know, I prayed beside my bed with my mother or I had a vacation Bible school or at camp or I was at a revival service and I went forward I knelt at the altar I raised my hand or they point to some kind of experience and I learned to ask them after that experience how did that influence your life three months six months nine months later and in a number of cases they said well not really that really didn't have anything and so as we talked what the conclusion I came to with many people was, and some people pointed to their baptism or their catechism or something like that, I'd say, you know, as you talk, I think we ought to think about that event. It it was a meaningful religious experience, it sounds like. I mean, you remember it. You can point back to it. You can give the details of it. But from what you said, I don't think you were born again. It was a meaningful religious experience, but you were not truly born again. But we can settle that today 
and I review the gospel, and I've had people, members of my church, pray to accept Christ in the office, and then I rebaptize them because they settled, you know, it, it, just, it wasn't a settled issue. It was a meaningful religious experience. And I've learned not to speak negatively about an experience that was meaningful. I just, that seems to be terminology that people accept. It was a meaningful religious experience. But you were not born again. Here's another one, talking about some of the shaping influences in my own personal life that have prompted me to evaluate my own evangelistic efforts. Uh, that is dealing with some individuals that I had led to the Lord, I thought, but they never grew in godliness. Because of the experience I told you earlier about what I experienced as a child, and then through my own theological studies, I know that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. It's not my job. And so I've never been the kind to twist people's arm behind their backs to say a prayer or something. So if I'm with somebody and they end up praying to accept Christ, it's not because I've been heavy-handed with them or I forced the decision. And yet I was troubled by the fact that there were some individuals that I had thought I had led to the Lord, but they never grew. Which raises a lot of questions in my mind, whether or not they were really saved or not. Here's another one. This had a big impact on me. And that was the matter of being challenged by a counselor in training after I did not present the gospel in session one when it became clear that the counselee was unsaved. The setting was at the Faith uh, Church in Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, for 24 years, I served as one of their trainers in their Monday training program. And the way that program worked is we'd have lectures in the morning and then after lunch uh, in the afternoon and evening, those of us who were trainers, we would conduct six different counseling sessions. And in each counseling session, if I'm, if I'm the counselor sitting here and the counselee is sitting there, at the end of the table or the desk are two trainees. And we would talk to the trainees ahead of time about what we're planning to do, what our agenda is, what our goals are. And then after the counselee leaves, we'd also talk to them and answer questions about why did you do this, how come about that, and when you zig, why did you zig instead of zagging, and so forth. And uh, on this one particular case, uh, session one with the new counselee, and uh, as I gathered data, it became obvious that the counselees were unsaved. But they come from marital counseling, and as I'm going to show you in a little bit, my process, my typical goal is I begin the process of evangelizing. And I started the process in my mind by asking them to start reading in the Gospel of John, asking them to begin memorizing John 3.16. I gave them a Gospel tract. But I also focused, that was on the bottom half of the homework sheet. At the top half was things designed to help them with their marriage. That's why they'd come to see me. And I've learned if you don't address what brings people in to see you, they won't come back. Okay? And uh, I've also learned that if all you do is when you figure out they're unsaved, if all you do is quit talking about their marriage and just spend the rest of the time talking to them about the gospel, I think what happens oftentimes, they walk to their car and the husband says to his wife, he just wants us to join his church. There's this major miscommunication or misinterpretation of what's going on. All right? So anyhow, after this session, when the couple left, and I'm talking to my trainees, one of my trainees was a pastor and he was really upset with me. And he really challenged me. And his statement to me was, I sure hope this couple doesn't die in a car wreck this week. You may have been the last Christian who could have presented the gospel to them and helped them to avoid going to hell. And so I explained my reasoning. He was not convinced, but he was very forceful in criticizing my methodology. And... That prompted some reevaluation. <laughs> Here's another one. Uh, I was supervising an ACBC applicant, uh, happened to be a female, and I'm listening to the recording of this session, who quit the data gathering in session one and began presenting the gospel after it, after it became evident that the counselee was unsaved. 
the session ended with the counselor leading the counselee in a prayer, phrase by phrase, to accept Christ. And then the counselor used 1 John 5.13 to give assurance of salvation. The counselor, in her report, and then in telling me about the session, was on cloud nine. She's rejoicing in a great victory. I questioned the wisdom of the counselor's procedures and the reality of the person's conversion. It was a difficult conversation. When you talk about raining on somebody's parade. And that was hard for both of us. Here's another one that's prompted some reevaluation of my own evangelistic efforts, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Word of God says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And in my mind, if there's profession of faith but no change, there's no conversion. I don't know how you get around 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's so clear. If anybody is in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things pass, new things come. We all, you know, biblical counseling is built around the doctrine of progressive sanctification. We don't expect everybody to be perfect, but we do expect growth. Things have to change. Okay, let's move on. Let me talk with you about some theological considerations. And I want to just mention four. I think all of these are very important as we consider this. We've got a new counselee in front of us. Am I going to evangelize them or am I going to treat them as a Christian? And why? So think about uh, these important matters. Point A, the new birth or regeneration is the act of God which gives eternal life to the one who believes in Christ. As a result, he becomes a member of God's family with a new capacity and a new desire to please his heavenly father. B, another theological consideration, the Great Commission is to make disciples. A disciple is a long-term follower, a long-term student. Our goal should be disciples, not professions of faith. In other words, our goal as biblical counselors is not to get how it's not to see how many notches we can get on our gospel gun. Point C, another theological consideration. First John, uh, which, by the way, is the New Testament book that was written explicitly to give people the assurance of salvation. First John 5.13 says, These things have been written that you may know you have eternal life. Okay? Now, look at your notes. First John teaches that assurance of salvation is grounded in life characteristics, not a particular religious experience. And yet many of you probably were raised like I was raised, that you know you're saved because I remember when I went forward, I threw a stick on the fire, I welded at the altar, I mean, whatever the phrase might be. But we've been trained to point to, that's why I think I'm saved. And yet the book in the New Testament that was written to give us assurance of salvation says nothing about that. Okay? That is significant. Here's another significant theological consideration. It is possible to hear a believable testimony of faith from somebody who is not genuinely born again. They know the language. It is also possible that a person can be born again and not be able to express it in a convincing manner. In other words, they, they can be a babe in Christ. They're born again, they're just a babe. They don't, don't know how to express it. So I think those theological considerations ought to be in our mind as we're thinking about this. So all that we've talked about so far should lead us to this where you can ask the question, okay, Randy, so what? What do we do now? Well, what I want to do is suggest some um, questions to help clarify a person's spiritual condition. 
Yesterday in a session that I had with you on how to get your counseling off to a good start, I talked about extensive data gathering where you're going around the circle of life and then intensive where you're probing in different areas. Uh, I suggest that when you start your data gathering, start by asking people to give you a life history. It's easier for people to talk about themselves and so forth, kind of gets the communication going, and you learn a lot about them. The next major area is their spiritual condition. All right? And so when you approach that, and here I'm going to give you, here are the intensive questions that I suggest you ask as you explore a person's spiritual condition. And here's one of the things I want you to write in your notes. Don't give them the answers to the questions. I hear that being done over and over again as I listen to recordings. You know, I'll hear counselors say, well, tell me when you were saved. Or tell me when you were born again. Or here's one. Tell me about the time that uh, you repented uh, and made Christ the Lord of your life. Or when did you turn to Christ? Those are all quotes. In every one of those, they are assuming that the person is saved. And even if the person's not, they fed them the terms. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is don't, when you ask, when you check somebody out about their spiritual condition, don't feed them the answers. So here's some ways uh, to do that. I would encourage you to start by saying, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you could say with confidence that if you were to die and go to heaven? Some of you may know that's evangelism explosion, diagnostic question number one. It is excellent. So if they, so the question is, if, have you come to a point in your spiritual life where you could say with confidence for you to die, you'd go to heaven? If they say yes, I'll say, okay, good. Tell me about that time and what led you to that confidence. And then you follow up that by saying, and what impact did that experience have on your lifestyle? If they... After you do that, or if they say no, then you're going to go to point B. But if they say yes, you're going to ask those questions. Then the second point B is, if you died and stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? This is evangelism explosion diagnostic question number two. Question one is designed to find out, does the person think they're saved? Question two is designed to find out, why do they think they're saved? And you'll have a lot of people tell you in a convincing way, yes, I prayed, I prayed with my mom or at the church, and I'll give you some point to some experience. But when you ask them, if you stood before God and asked you why he should let you into heaven, what you will hear many times is, well, you know, I tried to do a pretty good job over, I mean, I've not been perfect by any means, but, you know, I'm better than most, or I try to be faithful to my spouse and, and you're hearing very important information which is going to help you make a decision. Am I going to treat this person as a believer or as a non-believer? And then point C, and this is a question I got from somebody I supervised. I love this. It's so effective. <clears throat> if a coworker or a neighbor asked you, what is the gospel, what would you say? And then I like to ask, how many times did you read your Bible last week? And the follow-up question to that is, and how many times did you read your Bible the week before that? Um, I've been asking that question for decades, those two questions for decades. And the reason is, many, many years ago, I observed that when I asked, I just started asking, how many times did you read your Bible last week? I remember one guy said to me, you mean when I wasn't in church? Yeah, when you weren't in church. How many times did you get around and get and read your Bible last week? And uh, what I learned was that many people, when, when they call for counseling, they're in a jam. People, what motivates people to ask for counseling is they're in some kind of difficulty. And what happens with a lot of people is when they're in that difficulty, they hunt around the house till they find their Bible, they dust it off, open it up, and they're looking for a blessing, you know, because we're in a jam, we need help. And so I learned to ask, how many times did you read your Bible last week? And then how many times did you read your Bible the week before that? I've been asking these questions to probably hundreds of counselees, most of whom profess to be Christians, and the numbers I hear most frequently are 0, 1, and 2, which I think is pretty pathetic and uh, probably 
helps suggest why they're in some of the difficulty they're in and shows something about the priority of Christ and the scriptures in their life. So those two questions are very helpful to me. So I ask that. How many times read your Bible this week? How many times read the Bible the week before that? Again, you're gathering information to help you make a decision here toward the end of the session. Am I going to treat this person as a Christian or as a non-Christian? Then I like to ask, what is your favorite Bible verse? And uh, <laughs> I remember uh, talking to one guy, and he said, oh, boy, I just, there's so many. The Bible's such a rich book. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, give me one. Well, let's see. Probably, well, it'd probably be John 3.16. I said, man, it's hard to beat that one. I said, uh, can you quote that for me? Well, let's see. God, um, hmm. I'll tell you that blood pressure medicine I'm taking. It's just messing up my memory <laughs> these days. It is interesting how many people have been in Bible-believing our kind of churches for years and years. When you ask them what's your favorite Bible verse, how many of them cannot quote one reference? I mean, that's just stunning. And if you're the pastor, it should be very, very sad to you. So how many times do you read your Bible? What's your favorite Bible verse? Please quote it for me. And then point G, I like to ask, are you a member of a church? If they say yes, then I want to ask, and why did you join that church? What do you like about it? And you'll hear all kinds of things. Well, you know, it's close to the house. We've got a great youth group for our kids. Uh, they got a prehistoric kids are in preschool, or they've got a Christian school, or that's where we were married, or mom and dad are buried out back. Um, I mean, you know, you hear all kinds of things. Great architecture. We love the, the music. Occasionally here we love the preaching. You hear all kinds of things, but it's interesting. Are you a member, yes or no? And if yes, why are you a member at that church? And then if the answer is no, then to ask, and okay, you told me that you're a Christian. Why have you not joined a church? Because the way I understand the Bible, if you're a Christian, you need to be formally affiliated with the body of, body of Christ. So you tell me, why have you not joined a church? And you'll hear some very, what I call, sorry excuses why people have not joined a church. And then point H in what ministries are you serving? Again, referring to Pastor Good, who trained me in biblical counseling, one of the things that he kept saying to us is you've got to get your counselees serving. And he would point to verses like Mark 10, 45, which says that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And his statement was, a major problem with many of our counselees is their self-centeredness. And he says, we want them to grow to be like Christ. And part of growing to be like Christ is that you become a servant. You develop a servant spirit. And so we got to get them. And that's why even on the change of growth plan that I shared with you yesterday, part of it is do loving deeds or acts of service for people. I'm trying to get my counselees pointed toward serving, you know. And uh, so I ask people, in what ministries are you serving? And I'd expect somebody who loves God, they're going to be involved in loving others in a meaningful way. You see? So all of these questions, there's 12 of them there. If you ask every one of them, there's 8 to 12, depending on how you want to use them. That is intensive data gathering where I'm asking enough questions that at the end of the session, I should be able to make an informed decision. Am I going to treat this person as a Christian or am I going to treat them as a non-believer? I'm still going to keep counseling them, but it's an informed decision. And you're able to answer the question, if someone says, why are you treating them as a believer or as a non-believer? You're able to offer this evidence. See? And what... I think you will find with many people, they are talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. With uh, some of the people that uh, I've supervised, well, with all the people I supervise, I, uh, one of my expectations is that on question one of the ACBC case report form, it asks for background data where you've got to summarize the 
Council Lee and their circumstances in life. And what I uh, expect from the people I supervise, the last line on question one, a separate standing paragraph, you have to have the date you met them and a statement, I am treating them as a non-believer, or I am treating them as a Christian. And I have people, I'm supervised, they'll say, I am treating them as a Christian with some hesitation. Or... I'm not sure what to do. And so, but I encourage you to do that. I mean, after session one, make it, make a decision. Am I going to treat them as a believer or as a non-believer as you go forward? Okay, let's move forward. Number five, what are the knowledge minimums to be born again? And I think there are seven. And I don't think, I don't know how a person can be saved unless they are aware of these seven. Number one, God is holy. Number two, we are sinful. Point C, there is a penalty for sin. D, God became man and his name is Jesus Christ. Point E, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Point F, Forgiveness is available if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus' righteousness alone for your acceptance before this holy God. And G, God will begin a lifelong process of changing your thinking and behavior to become more like Christ. You are to seek and to embrace these changes. Now, a 10-year-old can understand those, right? But if a person doesn't understand those and accept them, I think there's reason to question whether or not they can... I don't, I don't, personally, I don't know how you can be saved without that. All right, now we come to point six. Okay, so in light of all that we've talked about, what do we do when we go home and try to put this into practice. Here are some suggested strategies, and I'm going to give you seven that I think could be very, very helpful to you. All right, the first one is default to viewing counsel leads as lost until they give you a compelling testimony supported by a lifestyle that is, at the minimum, somewhat Christian. Uh, if I were king, could have it any way I wanted it. I'm not king, and I don't get it the way I want it. You would memorize that statement. Here, here's what I have observed. Christian biblical counselors pursuing ACBC certification, they default to believing that the, the person is a Christian because the person tells them they're a Christian. I want to speak forcefully against that. I'm trying to do that in this whole session. What I'm exhorting you to do is you default to viewing every new counselee that's coming to see you, including members of your church, including leaders in your church. You default to viewing them as a non-believer until they give you a compelling testimony supported by a lifestyle that is somewhat Christian. Notice the characteristic of that. They've got a compelling testament. They, in other words, they can talk about it, but they have a lifestyle that is matching it. We're not looking for perfection. But I've counseled people who give you compelling testimonies because they've grown up in a good church or a leader, they've had good training, but they're living in adultery. I mean, they, they're talking the talk, but they're sure not walking the walk. Okay? So I will exhort you, the standard procedure, I do this with everybody. I just default to viewing them as a non-believer until you give me a compelling testimony supported by a lifestyle that's somewhat Christian. Basically, I'm saying, I don't think you're a Christian, but I can be persuaded. Persuade me. I can be persuaded. All right. A second strategy. When you are uh, have any questions about the reality of a person's conversion, assign reading in the Gospel of John. 
And I exhort uh, the, my counselees when they're reading the Gospel of John to pay close attention to what Jesus Christ says about himself. In the Gospel of John, there are the seven I am statements. Pay attention to what he does. There are seven miracles. And pay attention to the word believe. The word believe is the key word in the Gospel of John. It's used 98 times in 21 chapters. It's interesting, at the end of the Gospel of John, in fact, the Gospel of John was the only New Testament book that was written explicitly to evangelize people. And in John 20, verses 30 and 31, here's the way the book completes. After giving the seven I am's, the seven miracles, and John says, and many other signs truly to Jesus. And the word signs refers to the seven miracles, which, by the way, escalate in difficulty, culminating with the resurrection of Lazarus by him speaking the words. And John says, and many other signs truly to Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. So when you have any doubt about a person's conversion, get them reading in the Gospel of John, paying attention to those things. And then point C, I would encourage you to assign people to memorize John 3, verses 16 to 18, and possibly verse 36. But John 3, verses 16 to 18 is the primary passage I use to evangelize people in the counseling room. For God did not send his son into the world, excuse me, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's the gospel. There's our need for a savior. John 30, verse 36 says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. All right, here's a fourth suggestion, and that is to use an evangelistic track, a booklet, a CD, DVD that you find beneficial. And you want to get some of those, and I'll give you some recommendations on some of those in just a moment. And then I would encourage you to use part of each session to discuss the gospel and to answer questions. One of the questions that's been raised at times is, can, can a biblical counselor counsel a nonbeliever? I think the answer is yes. But we need to recognize that a nonbeliever will not be able to obey, like the, the principles of communication or the roles of a husband or the principles on parent. They'll never be able to obey it completely with the right motive without the aid of the Holy Spirit and a new heart. But you can teach non-believers the four rules of communication from Ephesians 4, 25, 32, and non-believers who try to be honest, keep current, attack problems, not people, and act, not react, if they do that in their home, they try to do that, things will be better at home in most cases. But they're never going to be able to do it consistently with the right motive without the aid of the Holy Spirit and a, and a new heart. So what I'm suggesting to you is I, I would encourage you to, when you're dealing with a non-believer, think about your counseling session as a railroad track. And it's not, am I going to evangelize or am I going to help them with their marriage or help them with their kids or their anxiety or their pornography problem, whatever it is. It's both. And so part of every session ought to be spent on the gospel and following up on the change and growth plan reading about the track and the gospel of John, memor, you know, follow up on their memorization and so forth. But you're also going to, you've got to talk about what brought them in to see you or they won't come back. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. And uh, one of the things I like to do sometimes in session two, sometimes I do it in session one, uh, I like to counsel where I've got like a whiteboard behind me. And in session one, sometimes I'll go to the whiteboard and over here I'll draw a, I'll write the word problems and I'll put a jagged circle around it. And then I'll go over to the other side of the whiteboard and I'll write the word solutions, long-term solutions, and I'll put a smooth circle. 
and I'll say, okay, you've come to see me because you've got these problems, and I'm, from what you've told me in the last 45, 50 minutes, I mean, I'm sure glad you're here. I mean, life has got to be hard for you right now. I want you to know that I'm absolutely convinced there are long-term solutions available for you, okay? But you need to understand, in order to go from here to here, you got to go through this door, and I draw my best door, put the hinges on it, put a doorknob, and on the door I write, Jesus Christ. There are no long-term solutions to the problems of life without involving Jesus Christ. And I said, that's why I'm going to ask you to start reading in the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John starts when Jesus Christ, before he comes to earth, and it ends when he goes back to heaven. So in 21 chapters, it's an overview of the life and ministry and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say to them, as you learn more about Christ and who he is, why he came, his claims on your life, and so forth, the more you learn about Christ, the closer you are to getting long-term solutions to problems. That's why I'm going to have you reading in the Bible. That's why I'm going to have you memorize these verses. We're going to start next week with John 3.16. And while I'm going to have you begin attending our church uh, regularly, where you're going to hear more about Christ and his teaching and his ways and so forth. So uh, use part of each session to uh, discuss the gospel and to answer questions. And then point F, I'd exhort you to be alert to opportunities to present Christ and explain the Christian life as you address the presentation problem. And th- this is one of, the, just one of the neatest things. Let's say a couple comes in to see you, and um, they come from marital problems, and it turns out one or both of them are unsaved. Let's say they're both unsaved, and so you're trying to evangelize them and everything, but they're just, they're, the relationship is just all messed up. So you start teaching on the role of the husband and the role of the wife, and you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, all right? And you read uh, Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, you cannot explain that verse without talking about the gospel. So even as you're teaching him about how he's got to take care of his wife, you're talking about Christ loving the church, and you're explaining the gospel again from another passage. Or when you talk to the wife about being obedient, uh, submissive, Ephesians 5.22, you're talking about, well, as followers of Christ, what it means to be a Christ follower is that we're submissive to his teaching and his ways and so forth. Or let's say that people came to see you because of communication problems and there's anger and bitterness in the marriage and communication is broken down. And so you want to teach them the, the four rules of communication, Ephesians 4.25 to 32. The last rule of communication is attacked, is... Attacked, is um, um, act, don't react from verses 31 and 32. And verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's the put off. And you can talk about the two different kinds of anger that are mentioned there and so forth. But then you say, okay, now here's how God wants you to act. As you later repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior and become a Christ follower, here's how he's going to expect you to act. Verse 32 says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I mean, you can't even teach the four rules of communication. The communication without, I mean, it's just like a softball setup, you know, to present, talk about the gospel again. It's right there. And the thing, it's not just any, this is all through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, you'll see that. So be alert to opportunities to present Christ and explain the Christian lifestyle as you address the presentation problem. And then point G, when appropriate, call the person to repentance and saving faith. I mean, draw the net, give the invitation, um, invite them to repent and trust Christ in in the session. All right, let's move on. Number seven. Let me uh, conclude some of the teaching by talking to you about how I usually present the gospel in the counseling room. So um, I'll have the counselees begin reading the gospel of John, as I've already said, and having them begin memorizing John 3, 16 this week, then add verse 17 next week, then verse 18, be able to quote that word perfect is what we're working toward. And then uh, probably begin session three, maybe, I would go to the whiteboard, and on the whiteboard what I do is I write... And I tell them the key word in the book of, of John is the word believe. It's 98 times in 21 chapters. And so let me talk with you about what it means for a person to believe in Jesus. And I said it can be summarized, I think, around three key words. One is the facts. And 
In other words, you can't believe in Jesus unless you know something about him. I mean, there's a literal, physical Jesus that walked on earth. His life and his teachings are recorded in the Bible. You need to know about the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus that your friends talk about or the Jesus of your imagination. All right? We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why I want you to read it and read the Gospel of John, read it over again. And the facts, this deals with the mental aspects of conversion. The mind understands the gospel and truth about Christ. But some people are intellectually persuaded, but they're spiritually uncommitted. But they got to know the facts. That's, where, that's why you got to people. And again, in our culture, you just cannot assume that when people, you hear a counselee talking about Jesus, that they're talking about the Jesus you're thinking about. Okay. Then there's not only facts, but there's got to be a commitment. This is the emotional aspect of conversion. And as a person reads about Christ, one embraces the truth, the truthfulness of the facts of why Christ came. They embrace the the truth about our sinfulness, his sinlessness, and his substitutionary death on our behalf. There's a, a commitment. But it needs to be the kind of commitment that produces a change. This deals with the volitional aspect of conversion. The sinner submits his will to Christ and his word. Think about John 3.36. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see the life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or think about John 8, 31. It says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I think we ought to recognize that there's a lot of people who know some things about Jesus that's biblically accurate. And they have a commitment. But in reality, they're a fan of Jesus. They're not a follower. There needs to be that commitment. So I use that outline. And I've done this with some of my former church members to say, okay, you knew some facts. You had that experience in the past. Seemed like it was meaningful. You made some kind of commitment, but was it a... Where you're really born again. And so that outline, it's simple for you to talk about the key aspects of the, the gospel. All right, so let me uh, head toward the finish line here by talking about some helpful resources. The first one is a PowerPoint presentation by Stuart Scott called Presenting the Gospel in Its Context. And his counseling ministry is called 180 Counseling, and uh, it's very, very helpful. There's also a book published by uh, Focus Publishing, written by Susan Heck, who's a ACBC certified counselor, called The Liberating Gospel, A Call to Salvation. And I'd encourage you to get a few of those, have them around the, the church. Those can be very, very helpful in understanding the gospel. And then I would draw your attention to Good News Publishers, or Crossway. Good News Publishers is the the umbrella company. Most of us are familiar with the name Crossway Publishing. A lot of the books in the book room are published by Crossway. But Good News Publishers, I mean, think about the name, Good News Publishers. It started as an evangelistic organization, and they they have the best arrangement of gospel evangelistic tracks. And for every season of the year, they'll have some coming out for that you can use in Halloween, and then some for Thanksgiving and Christmas and um it's just tremendous. And if you've never visited their website, go look at it. And they've got tracks in multiple languages. It's a wonderful resource. It's a good, good ministry. Then I would draw your attention to um, uh, point D is Paul Washer regarding the gospel. And he's got several things that are on YouTube. And uh, you'd want to maybe check him out. Also, I would draw your attention to the Cripple Gate. And this is one of the few blogs that I read regularly, and I'd encourage you to subscribe to it. And um, this is written by four or five guys that graduated from Master's Seminary in California, and they're serving now, Lord, around the world. But they address different topics, 
And um, especially if any of you just don't feel like you're as sharp or educated theologically as you want to be, if you will read the Cripplegate blog, which comes out about five days a week, you'll get an education theologically. And they just address various issues and have different people writing. And a lot of it's on evangelistic issues that you'll find very helpful. By the way, the the term Cripplegate back in Puritan times when sometimes Christians were being persecuted in England, believers would meet real early in the morning at a place in London called the Cripplegate for prayer and for brief Bible study before they went to their places of work. That Cripplegate was destroyed in the bombing in World War II, but they've kept that name, and it's a gathering of believers to think about spiritual things. And then I draw your attention to the book Gospel Fluency, Speaking Truths of Jesus and the Everyday Stuff of Life by Jeff Vanderstelt. I think you'll find that one uh, helpful. And then uh, I'd also draw your attention to the book The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And uh, that one's just been brought to my attention. I think it's really an important book, and you'd consider that. Okay, I finished a little less than one hour. Any questions before we race to lunch? Uh, the question is, what may my thoughts about uh, using a resource written by a woman handing it to a man? It was theologically accurate. I think that would be my criteria. Susan Heck is an outstanding student. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, truth is truth. And um, if it's well presented, and I think that's part of the challenge we want is um, a lot of our counselees don't read well. Um, and I find just shorter things. And I, particularly if you can find something that has diagrams. That's part of the benefit of using Stuart Scott's PowerPoint is you can just bring up the PowerPoint on your computer and your laptop and spin it around and say, now look at this, and you can kind of use that as a teaching point because we live in such a visually oriented culture. So. Yeah, the question is about if you're dealing with somebody who's been a, maybe a cultural Christian or professing believer for years, but you're not sure they're saved and you want to challenge them. Yeah, I think um, the way you express your concern is very important. And I like to use like a medical analogy and say, if I was a medical doctor and through the information I've gathered from my interactions with you, if I thought you had cancer, would I be loving if I told you or if I didn't tell you? What kind of doctor would you want me to be? Well, I'm not a physical doctor. I'm a spiritual doctor. I have questions about whether or not you're really saved. And we just need to give it some time and attention. It's very, very important. And oftentimes that discussion comes like on session three or four when they haven't been doing the homework. And I end up saying to them, you know, the way you, your failure to do the homework, the incompleteness, your lack of uh, participation in the process and so forth suggests to me that you're just trying to click off, yes, I went to counseling, that you don't really have a heart that's hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And sometimes I say to people, you're responding to the scriptures more like I would expect a non-believer to respond than I would expect a believer. And I say to people, I can be convinced you're a Christian. I mean, convince me. You got the words, but I'm just sure not seeing the, the heart attitude or the actions. One of the related to that, if I can turn that around, with some of the people I supervised when I've provided this teaching to them, then we've discussed it. They've asked the question, Randy, I'm afraid to challenge somebody like in our church who's a member who I really think is saved, but to really question them about their salvation because I don't want them to be mad at me. And my response is, hey, listen, somebody who's really saved, they'll be glad to talk about it. I mean, people, I don't get mad about somebody. I say, hey, tell me about when you were saved. 
or tell me, asking me those questions. Those are not offensive to anybody that's generally born again. We like to talk about that. And uh, so if you start questioning somebody, they get a little feisty with you, that suggests to me they're not really born again. I mean, don't you like to talk about what Jesus done in your life and how you met him and so forth? So, okay. He said that the gospel is offensive to those that are perishing. Okay, I'm up against my one hour. Thank you for your patience. Let's go have lunch.